morning again. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24. 1 John 3, 19 through 24. Let's go ahead uh, and begin in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your continued kindness to us. We thank you for your faithfulness, even as the song we just sang uh, says, Christ is Lord, and we, um, we affirm that, we yield to Christ and to your authority. You have created us, you have the right to tell us how we ought to live our lives. Uh, thank you that you have died on the cross for our sin and pray that you might encourage us here today. We pray in his name. Amen. The conscience is the great motivator. I would suggest to us that the conscience is stronger than any other human desire or impulse, hands down. The conscience tames everything that it touches. The conscience tames sexual desire, it tames the tongue, it tames the stomach. Convince a man's conscience that he is in the wrong, and he will take care of the rest, no enforcement necessary. If you were suddenly given authority and power over all the nations of the world, over governments and uh, provinces and states and countries, and you were granted one wish to help you carry out your authority over the entire world, what would you wish for? How could you control a population that size? You know what you wish for? You wish for control over the human conscience. Control the conscience, and you can control everything. If you can make people feel guilty, then you have power over them. This is why manipulation by guilt is so common in personal relationships. It's even popular among governments. Uh, I'm going to give you some quotes uh, from Rush Dooney here from his Politics of Guilt and Pity. Uh, in 1995, he said this, the political cultivation of guilt is a central means to power, for guilty men are slaves. Their conscience is in bondage, and hence they are easily made objects of control. Guilt is thus systematically taught for purposes of control. Several instances can be cited readily. He goes on, and I won't quote all of it, but he goes on to quote examples of how Americans in particular are made to feel guilty for the sins of their fathers. And if you could somehow convince someone who never did this kind of a sin or this wrong, if you could convince them that they're guilty for it, then you suddenly have an immense amount of power and control over them. He quotes things like um, the, uh, the critical race theory, which wasn't called by it in that time, or at least uh, popu in popular language. Uh, other Marxist-leaning philosophies tend to separate people into oppressor and oppressed groups, and uh, you make the oppressor class feel guilty, even if they did nothing wrong, for the purpose of control and direction. He continues on and says this, Christ came to free men from guilt, sin, and shame, whereas the political theologians would bind men's consciences. Again, Amer again, Americans are repeatedly assured that American history is a long account of guilt. This is defective history and perverse politics. Its purpose is the cultivation of guilt in order to produce a submissive populace. 
or basically the subtle indoctrination of humanistic scholarship infers that the Christian, and in America, the Protestant in particular, is guilty because he is a Christian. This is the strategy of the politics of guilt, a strategy for the destruction of liberty and the enslavement of men. I think he's right. This is a tried and true strategy. Guilt motivates. Guilt motivates people to do all sorts of things. Guilt people because of the color of their skin. Guilt people because of their Christianity. Shame and guilt was used prolifically throughout the world in all kinds of different ways. It's used by politicians, pastors, denominations, theologians, by fathers, by mothers, by siblings, by bosses, by the media, by social media influencers, by liberals, by conservatives. But unlike the harsh taskmasters of the guilt and conscience manipulators, Christ is a different kind of master. We read in Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus Christ has come to set captives free. He's come to set us free. We are not called to live under shame and guilt, but under freedom and life and joy. Come to Christ for this. And yet so many people, for whatever reason, stand in their jail cell with the door wide open and choose to stay imprisoned. Stockholm Syndrome, uh, some of you know this, is where a hostage forms a bond with his or her captor. We live in a nation of people with Stockholm Syndrome. Freedom is offered in Christ, and yet people choose to remain in guilt and shame. They choose to remain in bondage. Now, what Christ offers, just to be clear, is not that we sear our consciences and that we burn our consciences. That's not what we mean by freedom. We want our consciences to be informed by Scripture, now, by the way, a little side note here, this puts an incredible burden on me as a pastor, and I would actually covet your prayers in this regard. This is a burden that I carry every week that I preach, I carry daily with me. I do not want to weigh down and burden your consciences with extra biblical rules that have not come, stuff that's not come from Scripture. This is a very, sometimes it's a very fine line and hard to discern. Many pastors weigh down their people with so many burdens and rules that don't come from Scripture that their people cannot even move. They're suffocating. The Pharisees did this with all of their extra-biblical writings, and Jesus warns about this and says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men very easy for a church to fall into this, to fall into an extra-biblical, we're just going to teach all the commandments of men. Some pastors, particularly those who are the heads of cults, will heap conscience scruples on their people in order to control them. They'll say things like this, if you ever leave this church, you will go to hell. Some pastors say that. It's a... Uh, severe example, but it does happen. It's motivation by guilt and shame. Or the pastor who forbids someone who has repented of their sin, he forbids them from coming to the Lord's table. We'll wait and see. 
we'll add extra rules before you can come to the Lord's table. No, it's open to all who are believing in Christ and who are repentant. Freedom in Christ. Here's a helpful little graphic. Um, a few years ago, we went through a book called Conscience. Um, if you've not read this book, by the way, I highly recommend. This is a, gr a great little book. Um, this is coming from the, the um, uh, appendix in the book. Uh, and he basically is kind of conveying here how there are these overlapping areas of, uh, of the conscience. Um, and so, obviously, God's Word and his, his Scripture gives to us what the standard is, and sometimes our conscience will not quite perfectly overlay that. In fact, I would say probably all of us, it's never going to be exactly perfectly overlaid on that. We're really going to be dealing, according to the passage today, with number five up here, which is my scruple. You see what that area is? That's an area that's not a sin uh, to God. God does not say this is a sin, but it's a conscience scruple for me. I have an oversensitive conscience uh, that tells me that I'm wrong all of the time. And that's kind of what the passage uh, deals with today. Let's, let's read the text, 1 John 3, 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart or conscience condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We begin here in verse 19, which simply says this. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Verse 19 probably goes with the previous section. Probably should have preached it last week, but here we are. Uh, verse 19 really connects these two sections together. Um, because if you remember last week, the emphasis of the text was that we must love one another. He says this over and over again in different ways and illustrates, it gives us examples, so on and so forth. And then he, we get to verse 19, and it's by this that you'll know that you're of the truth. Like, if you're, if you're loving one another, then this is an evidence of your salvation, essentially, is what verse 19 says. And, and also, what this is saying is, um, uh, by our love for others, our hearts or our consciences will be reassured. Now, here's what he's saying here. He's saying that the path to assurance, that is the path of knowing you are a child of God, is through, in one sense, obedience. Now, there's lots going on here. This is not, we're not saying uh, salvation by works at all. Um, but let me just uh, say, we talked about this during our Assurance of Faith series. If you are engaging in unrepentant sin, you can have no assurance of your salvation. Right? Let's put it this way. Um, if you are engaging in unrepentant sin, you will have no assurance of your faith. Uh, and you should have no assurance of your faith. If you are just going on and saying, who cares, and I'm just going to continue on and on and on and do whatever I want to do, then you should not have assurance of faith. 
Now, if you are genuinely a child of God, he will bring you to repentance, and then that will evidence your faith. Christian hearts are reassured of their status in God when they see a difference in their lives. And we've talked about this and we've explored this, okay, in, in many ways throughout 1 John. We're not saying sinless perfection and all those kinds of things. We're saying that we're seeing growth and change and sanctification and a difference in all of that kind of stuff. Um, so if you, for, for instance, if you neglect the assembling of yourselves together in the local church, if you refuse to forgive someone, if you are defined by bitterness or anger or selfishness and you are persisting in this and you are unrepentant in this, then you cannot have uh, assurance or confidence before the Lord. It's just simple part and parcel of this. Now, with that being said, we know that sometimes our consciences can be like over active, constantly warning us when there is no danger. For whatever reason, and this happened last night, in the middle of the night, our smoke detector went off in the middle of the night, okay? This is like a regular occurrence. I don't know what's going on, okay? <laughs> like in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and all of a sudden, you know, wah, 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 and then we get up, walk around the whole house, check every room, everything's fine, and like it goes off. I don't know what's the deal with this, but it's just an overactive smoke detector, okay? It's going off, and it's warning us when there actually is no real danger. And sometimes the conscience will work in the same way. It begins to just, the alarm goes off, and it's saying there's something dangerous here, and actually that's not the case. And that really is, I think, what this passage in 1 John 3 is about. It's about those who have an overactive conscience. Some of you came to church today carrying a weight, a very heavy conscience, a, a very heavy burden. Um, my desire today is to set you free from this burden, or more appropriately, point you to the one who can set you free from this burden that you're carrying with you. My heart's desire is for you to live in spiritual freedom and to actually, like, be joyful because of what you have in Christ. Like, to, to smile because of the joy that Christ has given to us. It is possible that you used to attend a church that believed that it, the church, was the Lord of your conscience. Possible that you attend a good church, you used to attend a good church, and merely misunderstood and misinterpreted and misapplied some things, and, and your conscience kind of went haywire. It's possible that you grew up in a family uh, with parents that added burden upon burden and controlled you and manipulated you with guilt. Whatever it is, my purpose today is not to go on an archaeological expedition into the past and figure out who to blame for what. We have what we have here today, and we're going to run with that, and we're going to move forward here. Verse 20, for some of us, perhaps could be, in many ways, one of the most paradigm-shifting verses in the entire letter of 1 John. 
1 John 3.20, for whenever our heart or our conscience condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. The idea behind this verse is that your heart or your conscience could condemn you falsely. You could have an overactive conscience. I want you to see here how MacArthur um, summarizes these verses. Some of his readers, talking about John in this verse, may have been so overwhelmed by the memory of their past sins and awareness of present ones that they found the thought of God's forgiveness nearly impossible to accept. No one ever feel like this? Their overactive consciences, beleaguering them with their own shortcomings, perhaps made it difficult for them to have a settled confidence in their right standing before God. One might think of Martin Luther and spending hours upon hours in the confessional. Uh, perhaps maybe you have a similar experience in your own life, a constant, unending, just string of confession upon confession upon confession to this person and that person, your, your mind is so overwhelmed by your own burden of guilt that you cannot possibly imagine that God could simply forgive you and just, it's all for free. Some of you may find it difficult to get outside of your own head, and you may be burdened beyond measure by your sense of sin. John Flavel, the uh, uh, Puritan, says that the con- about the conscience, he says, this is that torment which no man can endure. Some of you know this torment. And actually, by the way, all of us should know this torment because this torment is what brings us to Christ initially. And we're not trying to silence this, by the way, when it, when it does what it's supposed to do. The conscience is given to us by God for a very good purpose. We're not diminishing the importance of the conscience here today. Proverbs 20 and verse 27 refers to the conscience as God's candle or God's lamp. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord searching all his inmost parts. Again, Flavel says this, when it, talking about the conscience, when it smiles, cheers, acquits, and comforts, oh, what a heaven doth it create within a man, right? When the conscience does this to you, there's like a heaven inside of your soul. And then he says, when it frowns, condemns, and terrifies, how doth it obscure, yea, shroud in darkness all the pleasures, joy, and delights of this world. The conscience, when it condemns you, shrouds you in darkness. Likewise, he says, a guilty conscience is more terrified with imaginary dangers than a pure conscience is with real ones. You know the verse, the wicked flees when no one pursues. Right. A guilty sinner carries a witness against himself in his own bosom. Calvin called the conscience uh, a man's executioner. Thomas Boston called it God's deputy within a man. John Bunyan called it the bailiff. Matthew Henry referred to it as the court of conscience. Thomas Manton says conscience is easily offended but not easily appeased. Conscience is a tricky thing. It's something that must be respected, but it can unnecessarily afflict the children of mankind. 
Some Christians find themselves afflicted beyond measure by an overly scrupulous conscience, one that nags them at every single turn and will never leave them alone. It cries out to them as they lie awake in bed at night. It cries out to them when they drive down the road. It tells them that they have to apologize to every person they've ever met in their lives because they may have unintentionally and unknowingly offended them in some way. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know exact, some, and some of you say that's not even the half of it. The verse describes it this way. Whenever our heart condemns us. This is, by the way, again, a good thing. God's deputy within the man is a good thing because it informs us that we have sinned against the holy God and that we need restoration. Now, what should happen is that should push us to Christ, and we find forgiveness and freedom. Sometimes, though, we seek to deal with it our own way, and when we deal with it our own way, it continues to nag and afflict and burden us, and we live in chains. The rest of this verse says, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. What is he saying? He's saying that if your conscience harasses you, Whenever our heart condemns us, if your conscience harasses you, God is greater than that. There is a higher court than the court of conscience, right? It's the Lord. Again, MacArthur says, now your love won't be perfect, but it will be there. Let that bolster your assurance, for John warned that your heart or conscience may try to incriminate you and make you doubt. The fallen flesh has the capability to play games with your mind. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, may seek to exploit that tendency. And whatever your heart condemns you, you can be assured if you see love in your life. He's saying he's been pushing. The Christian loves. Look at your life. Do you see any love in your life? And you over-scrupulize, you just, you're, you're looking at this and you're saying, I don't do this perfectly. And yes, none of us do this perfectly. He's saying, do you see any love in your life? Grab a hold of that and find assurance in that. You see, we read in John 3, the gospel now of John, verse 18. I hope this verse is a comfort to you. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you are in Christ, you can have a clean conscience and have freedom. On the other hand, According to verse 21, if our conscience does not condemn us, if you are experiencing this freedom that we're talking about in Christ, if your heart does not condemn you, then what do you have? Confidence before the Lord. We're wanting to get there. Some of us need to get there because we're wrestling through these things. You can have a settled confidence in the Lord, and he's saying that this comes when your heart does not condemn you in verse 21. That is to say... A guilty conscience prevents us from having assurance, but a clean conscience gives us assurance. 
Not only this, we see in verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Those who have assurance and confidence before the Lord because of a clean conscience receive what they ask for. Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And you need a clean conscience for this. Now I realize some of you may be saying, well, where's the qualifier for this? And there is a qualifier. Uh, and it's in the same letter, 1 John 5 in verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You see the qualification here? Sometimes we look at these verses, like verse 22, uh, and, and, and we think to ourselves, well, I can just ask for anything. And yes, you can ask for anything, as long as it's according to his will. In the same letter here, he's giving us the qualification to that. Our requests must be according to his will. And we know that his commandments are not burdensome in verse 23. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. We're called to do two things. We're called to believe in Jesus. That is to trust him for salvation. That means if you're not trusting in Christ right now, repent and believe. That's the path to a clean conscience is through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate Lord of the conscience. And we're also called in verse 23 to love one another, which is like what we saw last week. When we do this, we have confidence. Note verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. The path to a clean, this is what we started off with today. What we're saying here is that the path to a clean conscience is not by searing the conscience. I'll just ignore the conscience and do whatever I want. You see, he's still calling us. In the very passage that he's saying you can have a clean conscience, he's calling us to obedience. The very same passage. It's not through disobedience that we find assurance. You still must obey. You still must love. You must do what the Lord says. You are submitting to his lordship. Those who truly abide in God keep his commandments. And when we do that, he gives to us assurance through the spirit that we're in him. So he's holding these things together with maybe a little bit of tension from our perspective. And he's simply saying that the path to assurance is through believing in Jesus Christ and doing what he's called us to do. Now, I am going to have here, I want to, we're breaking off a little early here, but I want to pin some things kind of to the, the map here. And I'll have a couple of quotations that are a little bit longer, um, but, but I, want to, I want us to get our bearings here on the idea of the conscience. Uh, I'm going to put a quote up here. I have to say this to be clear. The quote that I'm going to put up here is a bad quote. Don't believe it, okay? Okay. Sometimes I put a quote up, and it takes a few seconds. Is he endorsing this? No. This is not being endorsed in any way. Uh, this is a quote from uh, Roman Catholic Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. And he's, he tells us what our heresy is, okay, according to him. He says, the principal heresy of the Protestants, that would be us, is that saints, that is the Christians, us, may obtain 
to a certain assurance of their gracious and pardoned state before God. Okay? Bad quote. Don't accept that, okay? Um, what is this Roman Catholic cardinal saying our heresy is? That we can have assurance of our salvation. He's saying that's heretical. You can't have assurance of your salvation. You can never know. Your whole life will be shrouded in darkness and uncertainty until that final moment. That's what he's saying as a, as a Roman Catholic. In other words, he believes that what we are saying today is heresy. He is saying that to preach that you can have a clean conscience and freedom in Jesus Christ is heretical. That's what he's saying. He's saying essentially you, may, you are not permitted to have freedom in Christ. That's the implication of this, okay? Sinclair Ferguson responds to this. And he has a very insightful statement. He says, if assurance can be enjoyed by all at the beginning of the Christian life, which is what we say, we say the moment of salvation, you can have assurance. Sometimes it's in seed form, and sometimes we wrestle through this in practice, but it is available in full at the beginning of the Christian life. Ferguson said, this is the good quote, by the way, okay? If assurance can be enjoyed by all at the beginning of the Christian life, rather than, in only a few cases, be realized by the end, that's what the Roman Catholics are saying, you can't have assurance till the end, the power of the church is immediately reduced. What it cannot give, it cannot take away. In other words, the Catholic Church tells you that you may never be sure of your salvation, and therefore, it keeps your conscience perpetually guilty and in suspense, and shrouded in darkness. Why? You have to keep coming back to us to give you these things. And now, guess what? You have a very powerful and controlling church. This is the illustration that we began with, is that if you could have one wish granted to you to control a large population of people, what would that be? It is to be Lord over the conscience. Because if I can control that, I can control everyone. And he's saying the Catholic Church wants to be that Lord over your conscience. Jesus works differently. I'm going to tell you how Jesus cleans your conscience. Hebrews 9.12 He entered once for all. Over with. You repent and you believe in the gospel, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and your sins are forgiven permanently for all time. You don't have to work to earn this, you don't have to jump through all these hoops, you don't have to maintain everything, you don't have to continue, it's over with. He's once for all, he's entered into the holy places, it's not the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament where I have to give a sacrifice every single time again and again and again. It's not what the Roman Catholics are doing by saying every Mass we're going to bring Christ down again and again and again and re-sacrifice him over and over and over. It's not this, it's not that, it's Jesus Christ over with. Done. Freedom. Joy. Peace. Happiness. Eternal life in Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. You know what the implication of Hebrews 9.12 is? 
Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, clean conscience, no guilt, no shame, none of it. It's over with. Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is worthy of all of our worship. The path to a clean conscience comes through Jesus Christ alone, and nobody can take that from you. No government, no politician, no pastor, no denomination, no church, no parent, no child, no employer, no male, no female, nobody. John MacArthur explains. This is from his commentary on this passage, 1 John 3. Actually, can you guys in the back just scroll through this as I'm going because it's a little bit of a longer one and if I can just focus on one thing, that'd be better. Those who have been justified by faith are at peace with God and enjoy the peace of God. Nevertheless, a believer may experience unnecessary guilt as his heart condemns him. But there is, what did we say before, a higher court than the human heart or conscience for God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. If he has declared believers righteous in Christ, then they are righteous. Who are you to argue with God? Thus Paul wrote, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and no one can ever separate them from the saving love of God in Christ. He sees believers' greatest, most profound failures, and he knows far more about their weaknesses than even their own consciences do. Yet God has forgiven fully those who by faith in Christ have been adopted into his family. Moreover, he is at work in their hearts, continuing to cleanse them from the sin that still lingers there. He looks beyond the remaining sin and sees the holy affections he has planted in them that demonstrate the transformed natures of his children. Therefore, even when overwhelmed by their sinfulness, believers can say with Peter, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Some of you are aware of the famous John Bunyan, the John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you are aware that he wrote uh, an autobiography called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, referring, of course, to himself. And uh, some of you also know that John Bunyan was tormented day and night by his own conscience. Uh, when, when you call, uh, refer to the conscience as the executioner, he felt this in his soul. Uh, he could not do anything. He could not move right or left. He literally could not put food in his mouth without his conscience afflicting him about something of that whole process. He was paralyzed. John Bunyan wrote about this example in his autobiography. And then suddenly, in one moment, it completely left him and was over with. Uh, His conscience one moment was screaming at him about literally every last thought and action that he did. And the next moment, he found rest and joy and peace. And I am going to quote to you the section from his autobiography where he expressed 
how he found this freedom. This is how to have a clean conscience according to John Bunyan, and I would say ultimately according to the gospel. And if you guys could scroll through this one as well, that would be helpful. Bunyan says this, One day, as I was passing in the field, and that too was some dashes on my conscience, even there, fearing less, yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. What is the sentence that fell on his soul? Thy righteousness is in heaven. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was not that. My righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What happened when he realized this? Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. He's talking about the conscience nagging him constantly. My temptations also fled away. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. I saw that the man Christ Jesus is our righteousness and sanctification before God. Here, therefore, I live for some time very sweetly and at peace with God through Christ. Oh, methought Christ, Christ, there was nothing but Christ that was before my eyes. It was glorious to see his exaltation and the worth and the prevalency of all of his benefits and that because of this now I could look from myself to him. Oh, I saw my gold was in my trunk at home. In Christ, my Lord and Savior. Now Christ was all, all my wisdom, all my righteousness, all my sanctification, all of my redemption. Further, the Lord did also lead me into the mystery of union with the Son of God, that I was joined to Him. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. That I was flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone, and now was that a sweet word to me in Ephesians 5.30. But this also was my faith in Him as my righteousness, the more confirmed to me. For if He and I were one... And his righteousness was mine, his merits mine, his victory also mine. There is one arrow, as it were, in today's message. And the arrow is pointed straight at Jesus Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone. Um, remember an author one time describing the love of God and simply saying, no way for us to be able to fully grasp and understand and, and exposit and, and, all, and flesh out all of its details and explain to you the fullness of the love of God. But what can we do? He said, like a little child can point to a star and say, see it for yourself. It's right there. So too the Christian can say, there he is, Jesus Christ. There's freedom in him. Whatever you have done, whatever sins you have committed, whatever wrongs you have done, no matter how bad, no matter how sinful, If you turn to Jesus Christ, 
He will pardon all of your sins and he will give to you a clean conscience in this very moment. You don't have to perform. You don't have to jump through hoops. You just turn to Christ and that alone is enough. And so my application today is simply to rest in Christ. Augustine once said this. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Look to him. He is sufficient. Jesus is how you have a clean conscience. The forgiveness that he offers rests in that higher court. Thank you, God, for your continued grace to us. We are overwhelmed by your goodness and by your love by providence, we are overwhelmed that there actually exists a possibility for people who actually are really in practice guilty people, deserving of just condemnation, that that group of people could actually have a clean conscience and could have freedom and won't have to search for ways in which to punish ourselves uh, or to somehow uh, earn it our own way. We know that you give to us a clean conscience. And so I pray that if there be anyone here who is remaining inside of that prison cell, that you would work in their hearts in such a way so that they would see the preeminence of Jesus Christ and come out of that, looking to him and to him alone for salvation. Prick the hearts and consciences of the people here today not in a, uh, in a way that is obviously uh, counter to Scripture, but prick those consciences to turn to Jesus Christ and to find that freedom. We thank you for what you've given to us in Christ's name. Amen.